Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, how's it going? I couldn't get my button straight. <laughs> How is everybody tonight? Well, I think you said fine. Let me get this thing going here. There we go. I don't know why I'm confused about my buttons tonight. Okay, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of lovely Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means we can help you if you have a paranormal need. But you got to remember, it's a big state, so we may not be able to get to you right away. So in that case, we have uh, mediums on staff that can phone you at your at your location and talk to you about what what possibly going on in your home and in most cases they can settle things down for you until we can get out there okay so uh if you want to get a hold of us you can find us all over facebook let me move my stuff here you can find us all over facebook and you can also find us at tiktok under california haunts you can find us at twitter at cal haunts you can find us on instagram at ghosty gal all lowercase and we're all over facebook just type in california haunts and we'll just pop right on up Welcome, welcome, welcome. And I can I can, I can ask you also, if uh, you are watching tonight from Facebook and you like what you see and you haven't done so already, hit that follow button because uh, I'm always looking for followers uh, of the show. We have a lot of shows. I've done 575 shows. So uh, those are all available on Facebook. But if you want to find those easier, go to our YouTube site at youtube.com forward slash California Haunts Radio. And you'll see all those shows there. And the cool thing about the YouTube side is that I don't do ghost stuff every night. Okay, I'm a journalist. I'm a photojournalist. So I like to change it up. Like last night, we worked on that Balenciaga scandal, you know, things like that. And just like tonight's topic. All right. I like to vary it. So if you go over there and check it out, you'll probably see something that you like. Okay, but there's a lot of videos that go through. And also, if you see that little ghost down in the bottom right hand corner, let me get my camera up here. Here we go go that way since i moved all this that ghost and you click on that that will subscribe you to our shows as well so every time a new show comes up you'll be notified that kind of thing anyway getting on with tonight welcome 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 i'm really excited i am a avid reader excuse me i am an avid i am an avid book reader and two of my heroes growing up were edgar Allan poe and mark twain right in fact my city sacramento Mark Twain lived here, lived in this area. He lived in the gold country. So um, he used to hang out in Sacramento Union newspaper he wrote for. So when I go like in my, what would we call old Sacramento on the uh, riverboat, you know, and have dinner or whatever on the riverboat, he's out there in the evenings talking to people, which is really cool for me, right? But Mark Twain's one of my, one of my favorite authors. His sense of humor just really, really appeals to me. He's got the same kind of sense of humor I do. But anyway, this gentleman that is going to be on tonight actually is a Mark Twain fan as well. But the main thing tonight we're going to be looking at is Edgar Allan Poe. And I enjoy his stuff. And uh, it's just like I enjoy Stephen King. So, you know, it's kind of like along the same genre. But I remember um, reading The Telltale Heart when I was in school. And uh, it was fascinating, fascinating reading. So I'm going to see if I can say his name right because I'm horrible with names. So tonight we have Mark. <laughs> 
Dodd Isiak. Dodd Isiak, I think. Well, if you can correct me. Sorry if I messed your name up. I'm horrible with names. So I'm going to bring him out and get this thing started. We can start talking to Poe. Okay, here we go. Hello, Charlotte. Hello. How are you? Good. The first thing that struck me when I saw your website, I thought, oh, my God, it's Mark Twain. Yeah, uh, I, I, I've been playing Mark Twain on stage for 44 years, and I've been playing it with less makeup every year. And uh, <laughs> it's when I when when, when I was um, 22 and I started playing Mark Twain, it took me two hours to look like this. So wow. it's just, you know, ages. And, and a lot of people ask me, they say, are you doing this on purpose? I say, yes, I had myself genetically altered many years ago. So I would look like Mark Twain when I was 66 years old. No, I'm not doing that. This is just this is just a, a side benefit of, uh, you know, uh, of age. And I just happened to what I didn't know was that when I was 22 and I would do this makeup, it was like prophecy. It, I was showing myself what I was going to look like 44 years later. And, That's cool, uh, though. So, yeah. Yep. That is really cool. You look at pictures of me in full makeup when I was 22, I look like I look right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is really cool. Yep. Now, I don't know if what I heard was true, but with, where Mark Twain's concerned, he wrote all those books like Life on the, Life on the Mississippi, you know, Huck Finn, Tom, mm -hmm. Tom Sawyer. And he was some of those books he had written about the Sacramento River. Well, well, California is, is immensely, immensely important to Mark Twain. Some people don't realize that, you, you know, the states that immediately get associated with Mark Twain are, are, are uh, Missouri. Right. Because he was, you know, born and raised there. Mm -hmm. Connecticut, because he died there and he lived there for many, many years. Mm -hmm. Even upstate New York, where he did a lot of his writing. And a lot of people don't know that he spent uh, very important years. As a matter of fact, he discovers the, the the story that's going to make him a superstar in Northern California, in that, that area, when he goes up to the gold uh, mines and he hears what he calls a villainous backwoods sketch, who's the jumping frog of Calaveras County, which he right. turned into that. And that story, uh, it was on the back of that frog that Mark Twain rode to superstar. So for Mark Twain, in many ways, you know, he, st he becomes Mark Twain in the Nevada Territory, in the uh -huh. Virginia City area, uh, right. the Silver Mines area. And then he moves on to California. And California, in the early part of Mark Twain's career, he was, one of his nicknames was the, the, the wild humorous of the California slope. Uh, he was known as a California writer for, uh, for many times. And even when he goes back east and he writes his first blockbuster, The Innocents Abroad, a travel book. Right. The way that book gets written is he's sending letters back to the Alta California and he's writing for a Californian audience. And that very much shapes the, that book because he's kind of a, a smart ass Californian back then. And he's, uh, he, he's, he's poking fun at all of the grand masters of Europe and European mm -hmm. customs. And the California audience is loving it. They're eating right. it because Twain is sort of saying, we don't have to bow down to the, uh, the, these great traditions of Europe. We are our own people. And, so California is a very important state in the shaping of who Mark Twain became. And a lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people don't don't understand just how important California I is. I remember spending nights on our boat on the river, you know, fishing. And the way he describes catfishing and Huckleberry Finn. And I remember thinking, I want to try that. Put those trot lines out and see how that works. But then as he, as he describes where huckleberry finn was and all this i'm trying to figure out on the river here is he talking about this river or is he talking about the mississippi river you know so i'm looking for different landmarks that he describes in the book to see you know if maybe he, he was talking about the sacramento river at that point well he's always drawn to rivers i mean it, it it doesn't really matter so much as because you know 
a river runs through it as far as Mark uh-huh. Twain's life goes. Uh-huh. And, you know, the Mississippi is is obviously, you know, as a pilot and he knows that river backwards and forwards. And then, you know, throughout his life, there, there, there are rivers, you know, the Hartford River, where he builds this grand home in Connecticut, and it's on mm-hmm. the Hartford River. Um, you know, when he spends his summers in writing in upstate New York, um, he's looking over, he has a study which overlooks the Shimung River. So there's always a river. There's always, there, there's always a river giving a lifeblood to Mark Twain, and he's going to find it. Well, that was the thing. And then like here in Sacramento, we, we had riverboats just like they did in Mississippi. We had sure. two riverboats that mm-hmm. that were going up and down. In fact, one of them ended up in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. You know, one of our riverboats ended up going back there. Sure. But I just I just find it so fascinating. Just like I've been on ghost hunts where, you know, he worked, where, where he walked around, you know, in these buildings. And I just find it so fascinating and historical. I'm just so such a big fan of his sense of humor. If you ever that- if you ever get back, get east and get to Hartford, Connecticut, where the house where he built this magnificent house mm-hmm. that, you know, this is a house where you can sense a writer's personality in the house right. because um, he built he made a, a fabulous amount of money as a writer, which most writers did not do in the in the 1900s. Mm-hmm. Poe certainly didn't. Uh, but he builds this house, which is an eccentric house. And it was described once as, you know, part Victorian mansion, part steamboat and part cuckoo clock. <laughs> and um, the house has been restored in all ways. They have the, as many of the original furnishings and everything back. But that house does ghost tours. And oh, cool. uh, a big part of that, that house is appeal is there's an entire book about just the ghost stories. And um, about seven years ago, I actually played Mark Twain in that house. And I got dressed in the basement of that house. They, they were old. They used to have a museum down in the basement. And the first time I went to that house, I was 15 years old. And that's where the museum space was, was down in the basement of that Hartford house. Well, now there's, they use it for storage, but there's still bathrooms down there that they used to be there for the general public. And they let us use those for the dressing rooms. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, it's, it's a deserted basement. And it's, there's all this deserted space. So I got into full makeup down there, full costume, and going up the stairs back into the main house. It was one of the, I've rarely gotten a spooky feeling playing Mark Twain, but boy, was that a spooky feeling going up to that house, up those stairs, dressed as Mark Twain, you know, and in full makeup. It was, you know, one of the, the you know, the most special experiences that life's going to be. probably watching. With. I know I find myself, and I you know, every time I do an investigation down there with the, that we call Sacramento, our old town. I mean, that's my first thing. Is this Mark Twain that I'm talking to? I'm a writer too. I work for newspapers. You know, it's like we have something in common. And um, I've never got, I've never contacted him yet. The Mm -hmm. one thing that I thought was so great about him was his sense of humor though. I mean, stuff that you could bring in from his time when he was alive to to this time. Like my favorite one was calling anybody the authority, like at the state of California or someplace insect authority. And that was one of my favorite lines, you know, yeah, so every time I go in somewhere like that, it's horrible to say that. But the first thought that comes into my mind is insect authority. You know, uh, that's the wonderful thing about Mark Twain is uh, he is a writer who constantly you read him today and it's stuff that was written, you know, uh, 150 years. ago. It always sounds like he's talking about today. Yes, and that's yes. because he understood that human nature does not change. Right. So the political animal of his day was the, is 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 a completely the political animal of today. Nothing's new under the sun. Right. You know, what he had to say about uh, political parties and mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. things, 
it sounds so resonant today. And it sounds like you know, I do when I play Mark Twain, I do a, a 15 minute monologue on politics. And, well, what this, uh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> but when I'm done, uh, the, so often enough that somebody in the audience will come up and say, did you juice that? Did you? I said, no, it's word for word, Mark Twain. I did not change a word. I arranged, it, it comes from different sources, but all the words are his. And right. they're always done. It's always, it's, it sounds like, you know, he wrote that about today's politicians. Oh, yeah. He was, nuttiness. He was, like, yeah. He was on it. He was on it. That's mm -hmm. why I have to watch myself when I go into like even a hospital sometimes or even like for the state when I have to get, you know, for, permits to do stuff. The first thing I think of is, is I'm thinking, oh, my God, look at all the insect authorities sitting here. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> really bad, you know, but I have read I spent summers reading Huckleberry Finn. I, I mean, by the time I got to high school and they said, oh, we're going to read it for a project. I didn't have to read it. I had it memorized word for word. Uh -huh. Good, because that was my summer reading every year. You know, I would read it because it was summer, right? You know, you're, in, in, yeah. Anyhow, well, well, well just, and I'll get you into your topic because you know there okay. are kind of two writers. Yes, I've, sir. I've carried throughout my entire life, and one is Mark Twain. Sure. And one is Edgar Allan Poe. And absolutely. Uh, you know, I'll start you with a with a quote. There was a writer named V.S. Pritchett, who mm -hmm. once famously said that all American literature comes from those two. 19th century scarecrows, Edgar Allan Poe and Mark Twain, that, that between them, they've got the whole gamut covered. It's a little bit of an overstatement, but it's not far from wrong. The no. importance of the two, those two writers cannot be overstated. It's just, it's just so fascinating. And I remember reading, like I said, you know, Edgar Allan Poe was required reading when I was in, in high school as well. It's one of the great things about Poe. Everybody gets him, you know, is, is Poe remains the best read not just in his own country, but around the world, American writer. And it's mm -hmm. not even close. And one of the reasons is, you know, you got him in the seventh grade or thereabouts. You were probably reading it before that, but you got him in the, the you, you're going to get him in the seventh grade. Everybody's going to get him in the seventh grade. And then you're going to get him right on through high school. If you take any college literature courses, you're going to get him again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you got him, you know, your, your parents got him, your grandparents got him, you know, nieces and nephews, children, grandchildren, all got chill and get Poe. And it's, it, it, and, and so he's immediately introduced in a way that everybody remembers, not just the stories, mm -hmm. but the specifics of the stories. It's like, if you say the telltale heart to yeah. somebody, they know what you're talking about. There's the recognition factor to the point where it can be parodied on the Simpsons or, or, or on SpongeBob SquarePants and they can do their version of the telltale heart. And we all know what they're doing because uh -huh. everybody got the telltale heart uh, in, in the seventh grade. And Poe is also recognizable is that you know, I say Edgar Allan Poe and you've got an image of that. Now the image may be a bit of a stereotype and it mm -hmm. may not be, you know, as, as close to reality as many people think, Mm -hmm. But you still got an image of what he looks like. Right. right. There's only two American writers, that, and, and Twain's the other one. They're, they're, they right. are the images in black and white. We they always think of Mark Twain dressed in white, and we always think of Edgar Allan Poe dressed in black. Mm -hmm. Both images are somewhat based on stereotypes, but still they are the two most recognized writer, American writers and, and have been for a long time. And there really is no, I mean, who can pick Herman Melville out of a police lineup? You know, right, who would know right. what, what he looked like? Who would know right. what Emerson looked like? Who would right. know what Longfellow? Right. Who reads him anymore, for that matter? Absolutely. I'm not saying Absolutely. that's a good thing. It's just a fact, 
you know. Or even David Frost. I mean, I, I, I read his stuff, but I wouldn't know what he looked like. I have no clue. If you go to a, into a Barnes & Noble or a BAM, you're going to see shelves devoted to Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. You're going to see Edgar Allan Poe journals, coffee mugs, plushies, action figures, buttons, tea tins, everything. Right. And, and, you know, where are the shelves for Melville? Where are the shelves for Hawthorne? You know, well, they don't exist. They uh-huh. simply do not exist. Uh-huh. So, so we actually merchandise Poe in a way that, that other writers do not get merchandised. So you've had this kind of one-two combination keeping Poe so alive in, in, in our presence. One is the public school system. Yay. One thing they do absolutely right is they give Poe to seventh graders. And the other is the pop culture. Is the pop culture has been an immense friend. Poe has got street cred forever. You know, Poe's on the cover of the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yeah. He's not only in the cover, he's got the top center position. Uh, he's name-checked in songs by Bob Dylan and John Lennon. He was used as a character on The Simpsons and South Park. Mm-hmm. There have been endless movie adaptations, often enough having very little to do with the original stories, but from the 1930s on and those universal films with Boris Karloff and Bela mm-hmm. Lugosi, like The Black Cat and mm-hmm. The Raven, and then the 1960s Roger Corman films with Vincent Price, right. you have this, this constant pop culture recognition of Poe. That combination of the public school system, and, and what a great what a great age to get Poe, seventh grade, when reading for most kids is a chore it's a bloody chore is what it is there are always one or two kids who like to read and you know you might have been one of them right but you were probably surrounded by kids who didn't like to read right Right, and you were probably surrounded by kids who thought oh no no not another reading assignment and then all of a sudden we give them Edgar Allan Poe and what's Poe doing He's dismembering corpses. He's walling people up in catacombs. He's sticking them in torture chambers. And all of a sudden, reading is not a bloody chore. It's a bloody joy. Mm-hmm. And kids love getting Edgar Allan Poe in the seventh grade. And here's the secret. Teachers love teaching Poe. And it's it's really very subversive because what a great age to get that stuff that can just make your mind go just just explode with it's it's just a jumpstart your imagination can can get at at that age and just try that just think if if you gave seventh graders a contemporary american author who was doing the same things poe was doing Mm -hmm. you you mean you would have an outcry from one end of the country to to the next the school board meetings would be a reign of terror you're giving them stories where they're doing what? You can't <laughs> give kids that. But it's Edgar Allan Poe and nobody raises an eyebrow. Right. Nobody ever complains. And that's because their parents got it. Their grandparents got it. And this is, it's just wonderful. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's a magic there that works. It shouldn't work. But in all ways, Poe has had the last laugh. What kind of person was Poe? Well, he wasn't the person you probably think he was. You know, because I think everybody gets fame has been a double edged sword for Poe in all ways. Um, There's this small group of stories which have kept Poe alive and they almost all fall on the spooky side of the street. And there's a reason for that. He was better at it than anybody else. He was, you know, Ray Bradbury once said that Edgar Allan Poe took the horror story and made literature out of it. 
-hmm. And that's not far from it. He is preceded by Mary Shelley. And 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 Mary Shelley certainly gets a big credit right. here Absolutely. for what she did. But Poe really does take, you know, certainly on the short story front, he does take the, the horror story and show the literary capabilities of what was being done. And there was a lot of people writing horror in, in Poe's time that was very popular. The magazines were full of it in England and in the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, Poe comes along and he all of a sudden understands the human psyche and, and human fear better than anybody else. And he applies his skill to this and he does, he elevates this way, way to the, to the top. So there's a reason we still read these poems and stories like The Raven and Annabelle Lee and uh -huh. The Telltale Heart and The Cask of Amontillado and all of these wonderful stories. But on this, the other thing is that if you could bring Edgar Allan Poe back to this planet for 24 hours and say, look at what your fame is today. And the, I think he would have had an incredibly ambivalent response to this. On the one hand, he'd be delighted that he is remembered. He's outlived. He's outlasted everybody who was supposed to outlive and outlast him and outshine him. But I think he'd be appalled that we have reduced him to this sort of grandfather of goth image caricature that we have of him. When I started working on the book and people would ask what I was the next book was going to be, and I said Edgar Allan Poe, uh, there was always a, a, a person here or there who would get this almost beatific look on their face. And they would say, oh, Edgar Allan Poe. I love Edgar Allan Poe. And then they would say, and I could almost, my lips would almost move with them as they said the next thing. They said, I've read everything he's written. And I never challenged it. I never shot it down. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, no, you haven't. <laughs> you haven't even gotten close. You've gotten one of those collections that say the complete tales and poems of Edgar Allan Poe. Sure. And you think you've read everything he's written. When Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe died at the age of 40 in 1849, when a collected edition of his works was put together in the early part of the 20th century, it filled 17 volumes. Wow. 17 volumes. And that was not everything. We discovered a lot of stuff after that 17 volume edition was 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 print was published. And it's that much of it is horror that much of it. it people would probably be surprised to learn that Poe wrote as much humor as he did horror. He wrote a lot of satires, hoaxes. He was a funny guy. <laughs> he had a great mm -hmm. sense of humor. And we don't think of Poe as having a sense of humor. Right. Um, so 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 Poe, he was interested in everything. I mean, he, his two greatest literary achievements was that he created the modern horror story and the modern detective story. So the mystery fans love him for one thing and the horror fans love him for another. But in those 17 volumes, you have an incredibly versatile writer. So we've taken Poe and we've kind of reduced him uh, to this, 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 this stereotype. And the stereotype is not true either. Because when I said Edgar Allan Poe, you and, and probably, you know, most of your, your, your listeners got an image. And the image was, let's see if this checks out now, right? The image is probably of a sickly guy, a guy with very pale complexion, sunken eyes, unhealthy, mm -hmm. probably sitting up in a dusty attic surrounded by cobwebs with a raven perched on his shoulder and a black cat red-eyed prowling through the dust 
with, while with quill pen in hand, he spins out these horror stories in these fits of a fever dream, probably fueled by alcohol and drugs. Now, that's probably pretty close to the stereotype yeah. most people have of Edgar Allan Poe. None of it's true. Not a bit of that is true. <laughs> Poe was a very careful, exacting writer. He wrote as a craftsman and an artist. And to suggest that the stories came out of any kind of hallucinations is to undercut his genius as a writer. It's sure mm -hmm. it's shortchanging him, criminally shortchanging him. You know, I think a lot of other people also would so if they come up with something about Poe, say, oh yeah, he he was he was an alcoholic, you know. Mm -hmm. Poe had a problem with alcohol, but it's probably not the problem you think it was. Is that yeah. Poe, from the moment he takes his first drink as a student at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, to the end of his life, the record is fairly consistent. It took very little alcohol to get Poe roaring drunk. It, and, and if he took, Poe was not one to savor or, or sip a drink. He would throw back the first one. And then it was as if he'd been drinking for hours. And then it wasn't a case of a simple morning hangover for Poe. It took him days to recover from a bout of drinking. So alcohol is a problem. It's a continuing problem throughout his life. But he was probably allergic to alcohol. And it probably devastated his system. Mm -hmm. And he was not drinking all the time. There are these long, long periods of sobriety. There's periods of 12, 14 months when he's not touching it. And common sense tells you that. How can somebody only live to be 40, leave behind enough writing of such high quality that it revolutionizes several literary forms? How can somebody write enough to fill 17 volumes, only live to be 40, and be constantly drunk? Well, you can't. And he wasn't. He was had these long periods. He was an incredibly hard worker, incredibly dedicated. And he was also healthy for most of his life. He was an athlete. Now, you don't think of Poe as an athlete, right? Mm -hmm. But Poe was a, a, an able boxer. He could win any jumping and, and, and leaping contest, even toward in, when he, towards the end of his life. He as a young man, swam the James River against the current on a blisteringly hot day and became a local champion. So he was in the military. He walked with a military gait upright. He wasn't stoop-shouldered and over. He walked with his shoulders back and with a, with, a, with a brisk walk that he had from the military. And he was a good soldier. He was, he was immediately or very quickly promoted to sergeant and then got himself into West Point as a cadet. So the image we have of Poe of being this unhealthy guy, a lot of it comes from the last two years. There are only about eight known photographs of Poe, what we call daguerreotypes. Almost all of them come from the last two years when clearly something's going on with Poe and he's, he is sick and, and his health has gone off the rails. The other thing about daguerreotypes is, you know, nobody was smiled in daguerreotypes back then. Because daguerreotypes are taken in studios. The lens had to stay open for a long time. You sat in an uncomfortable chair. The chair had a brace. And it had a neck brace here to keep your head in one position. So you wouldn't move while the lens was open. And you were encouraged not to smile. Because a smile is hard to sustain over a length of time. Mm -hmm. So everybody looks grim 
they don't only look grim, they look constipated in these daguerreotypes. Any politician or any statesman that you see pictures of from this era. So sure. all of Poe's, Poe never lived into the era of the candid photograph, the, the Kodak, when anybody could take pictures of their relatives, their neighbors, their friends. And if we had, then we would have had pictures of Poe laughing. We would have had Poe pictures of him playing leaping contests in the front yard, playing duets with his wife. Robert Block, the author of Psycho, um, was one of the people I, I talked to about Poe and whose, uh, whose insights into Poe are included in the book. So this is Norman Bates's daddy, basically. Sure. And, 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 and Bob Block said, who was a pen pal with H.P. Lovecraft when he was a young man, Block said, the problem is nobody thinks of Edgar Allan Poe as a guy whose mother-in-law called him Eddie. Once you accept that Poe, once you accept that you're on the road to getting behind the caricature and the stereotype and getting to the real guy who wrote those stories. And one of the things that always bothered me about Poe was in 43 years as a journalist, I got to interview most of the leading horror writers, directors, and actors. Um, Stephen King, Anne Rice, Clive Barker, Ray Bradbury, Robert Block, Directors, Wes Craven, and uh, actors like Vincent Price, Robert England. The thing I noticed about all of them was they all had great senses of humor. They're all richly funny people. And as, you know, Robert Block said, well, you know, of course, you need a sense of humor in order to do this. You'd go crazy if you didn't have a sense of humor. A sense of humor is what keeps you grounded. And humor and horror are flip sides of the exact same coin. Mm-hmm. They are the two things which we use to metaphorically address subjects we don't like to think about or that are difficult to think about, painful subjects. Humor and horror always play it for real. And they're the two things you can't fake. You can't lie to yourself. You can't lie to yourself about what makes you laugh and what scares you. Those are deeply visceral, personal responses. And you can't lie to yourself about what makes you scream in terror or what makes you scream with laughter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, Stephen King said, you know, that, yes, you know, we all have a sense of humor. And one of the reasons is because uh, horror writing is cathartic. We work through our nightmares. We put them down on paper and then we work through them and we're done with them. We give them to you. It's your problem now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to deal with this stuff. But we work, th- we work through this stuff. So. It struck me if all of these people who specialize in horror, actors, directors, and writers, all have a sense of humor and they are the best that we have right now, Poe must have had a sense of humor. Right. He did. He did. And this comes through and when you learn about his personal life, he was a very engaging, funny, witty guy. And um, he was not only funny in person, it could be very funny, he was raised to be a member of the Virginia aristocracy. That's what he thought he was going to be. Um, he was very gentlemanly, very courtly. Um, and he's funny. He wrote, he writes a lot of humor. Again, he writes a lot of satires and hoaxes and, and humorous stories. We just don't read those anymore, but he's always even funny in the horror stories. He's some of the horror stories are incre- If you're paying attention, he's letting you in on the joke often enough. Like the cask of Amontillado is a perfect example of that. 
you know, it's it's basically the, the the basic premise is incredibly grim because it's about one man leading another man to his death, a planned death, a revenge death, mm-hmm. because Montresor has been insulted by the noble Fortunato, so he has plotted a way that in which he can kill him and get away with it, and he's going to wall him up in the catacombs underneath his house where the tombs and crypts of his ancestors are. And he keeps, it's a cat and mouse game. He keeps baiting Fortunato and luring him into the deeper and deeper into the crypt, luring him closer and closer to his death, the whole time telling him, come, we must go back. Your health is precarious. We, 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 we must go back. And Fortunato keeps saying, oh, no, no, it will go on. And then finally, you no, know, Fortunato has this coughing fit and he can't speak for a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. And Montresor says again, we must go back. Your health is precious. You are a man to be missed. And and I and I, I cannot be responsible. And Fortunato says, enough! It is mere nothing. I shall not die of a cough. That's a laugh line, folks. Yeah. He's predicting, he's, you know, he's stupidly predicting the fact that he's about to die in a few minutes. And Montresor, in case you missed the joke, Montresor answers with just one word. True. Because he knows what he's about, what awful thing he's about to do. You know, and well, my wife, Sarah, who's a wonderful actress, we perform Poe uh, with our theater company. And we have, you know, for about 20 years we've been doing, and we do uh, the cask of Amontillado. And when I hit that line true, the, the audience falls apart. Because they know it's been, they're in on the joke now. Uh-huh. So so Poe could be grimly humorous, but humorous nonetheless, even in the horror stories. Interesting. I just, you know, then like you say, you know, you, you read these stories that these people write, even Stephen King, you know what I mean? And reading his stuff, and the first thing you think is they're, they're hollowed up in some dark house, you know, writing this stuff, you know, and then they're just so serious writing it. But obviously not. Well, and 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 most horror people that you meet, like Stephen King, you know, or, or they're very down to earth people. They're very, you know, these are not, you know, uh, they like playing up to, you know, the 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 image of them, and they like kidding it. And so did Poe. Would it surprise you to know that Poe did the exact same thing? Is that, um, you know, and I don't want to overstate this because I, I think one of the reasons people resist seeing the real Edgar Allan Poe is because they're afraid we're going to lose the fun Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. Now, we all love the fun Edgar Allan Poe. I do, too. You know, I have a Poe action figure that I keep on my desk, you know, Raven perched on his shoulder and everything. You know, I I, I love this as much as anybody does. Now, the thing is, but, but this is the stereotype right here. Look how pale that is. Look, I mean, that looks like, you know, the makeup for Wednesday Adams or something right sure. there. You know, now, it, 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 you mentioned Mark, we were talking to start talking about Mark Twain. Go back to like 1960. Go back to right around the beginning of that amazing decade when everything got turned upside down and inside out and everybody was questioning their place on the in the world and you know, this time of liberation movements and everything else. At the at 1960, right at the dawn of that, that decade, Mark Twain and Edgar Allan Poe are universally recognized. Mm-hmm. And their fame rests completely on 
uh, a stereotype, a stereotype that has a, a basis in truth. For, for Twain, it's this kind of grandfatherly man of letters, this, this, this genial wit, you know, poking fun at politicians, uh, the family author, the children's author. You know, he, he, this is the image that we have of Twain. It's rather a tame one. This is a tame Mark Twain. Poe, his image, is the guy who wrote the horror stories. He's, right. he's, 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 he's the spooky guy, the guy dressed in black all the time. You know, both those stereotypes have an element of truth to it. Twain was that guy. And to a certain extent, so was, was Poe. Was Poe drawn to the death culture of uh, the, the 1820s and 1830s? Absolutely. Could he dress in black? His hero was Lord Byron and he patterned himself after Byron and he dressed in black. Did he play up to that? Yes, he did. Um, was he, as Stephen King said, you know, drawn to the creaking door? You, you know, of course he was. He wouldn't have written those stories if he if he wasn't. So all of that is true. All of that has an element of truth. Now, it, what happened in the 1960s was all of the suppressed writings of Mark Twain came out in the 1960s and were published. And all of the writings that Mark Twain's daughter feared would hurt his reputation, his writings on politics, religion, war, what he what he called the damned human race, all of that writing expanded our view of Mark Twain. We didn't lose that other Mark Twain because of that. Right. We just enhanced our view of Twain and saw that he was a much more complex and bigger figure. Poe gets out of the 60s the same guy he went into the 60s. And he's yeah. still kind of the same guy today. <laughs> And what I always want to say, we're not going to lose that Edgar Allan Poe. He was just too good at all of that stuff. But it's not, we're not going to lose that Poe because we accept the fact that he was a very careful artist in what he did, that he wasn't the stereotype, and that he wrote a whole lot of other things that were not in any way uh, horrific or terrifying. So that's, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to sort of get behind the caricature because again, I love the caricature as much as anybody. I love mm -hmm. that that the the, the spooky Poe, and there's a reason. And, and as, as I said, you know, in his lifetime, when when the Raven is published in 1845, Poe finally gets a little taste of celebrity and fame. Um, I think I th another thing that people are surprised to learn about Edgar Allan Poe is that in his lifetime, Poe was not primarily known as a short story writer. Uh -huh. or a writer of spooky tales. He was not even best known as a poet, which is how he saw himself first and foremost, as a romantic poet. He was, in his lifetime, best known in America as a literary critic. And uh, such a fierce and exacting one, his nickname was the Tomahawk Man. Wow. And But Poe believed that American literature would never come into its own would never become its own voice until it broke the shackles of Europe in general and England in particular. And it 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 bothered him to see the the Boston elites where which and Boston really was the center of American literary uh, endeavors. It bothered him to see those people aping the Brits and 
he made a lot of enemies because of this. But he's not wrong. Poe is not wrong. He was a good critic. He was really good. And his judgments are sound. And his criticisms are just razor sharp and often very funny, too. But Poe makes a lot of enemies because of this. But he's primarily known as a literary critic. Secondarily, he's known as a poet. And third, he's known as the author of Tales of Horror and Mystery. Mm -hmm. Our century has reversed that order. We know him first and primarily as the author of horror and mystery tales, secondarily as a poet, and then if you know it at all, as a critic. But when he finally gets a little bit of fame and The Raven is published and it becomes a sensation, everybody is quoting The Raven. Everybody is, is knows the, 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 the catchphrases and everything. He loves it. He goes out, he's living in New York at the time, and he's walking the streets of Manhattan, and the neighborhood children are following him wherever he goes, and they're throwing pebbles at his, his heels, and they're getting braver and braver and creeping up on him and getting closer and closer, and just when they're close enough, he wheels around and says, nevermore, and they go running off screaming, and he loves it. He's playing up to this. <laughs> he just loves it. He gets a, he, at the end of his life, he was living in a cottage in what is now the Bronx, near Fordham. And um, a friend of his brought his, his, his daughter, his young daughter, to visit Poe. She wanted to meet the, the, this author. Uh -huh. um, so on a very nice sunny day, and, and the Bronx at that time is all the country. It's all undeveloped wooded, wooded lands, you know, and Poe loved it because he could go for long walks. And uh, this, this, this young lady arrives and they invite her in and they sit in the front room, the parlor, and there's a portrait of a woman in the, in, in, in the parlor. And she's just, she's looking at it and she, he knows what she's thinking. And he finally says to her, no, it's not the lost Lenore. And, you know, he, but he knows what his image is at this point. He knows what he, and he doesn't mind kidding with it a little bit. He doesn't need, she know he knows she's looking around for a raven. Where's the raven? And, right. you know, he didn't have a raven. He had a cat. He loved cats. <laughs> and it wasn't a black cat. It was it was a tortoiseshell. So, you know, again, when you get when you get behind that, you get into the psyche. That's a much more realistic, you know, uh, appraisal of the person who must have wrote those horror stories we love so much. Right. right. It's like what we can accept that Stephen King loves baseball, and that right. Stephen King loves going to Boston Red Sox games. And Stephen King has all of these interests, which are just all American down-to-earth images. None of that hurts his standing as one of our leading purveyors of, of, of scary fiction. Right. You know, and if we accept the, the real Poe, it should not endanger that either. So that's one of the reasons I wrote the book was because, you know, this, this, this is in many ways a working writer's view of a working writer, because mostly that's what Poe was. You know, he battled poverty his whole life. Mm -hmm. He was always the outsider. And he, he was a genius. And the interesting thing is he knew he was a genius. Mm -hmm. And that had to have been a very lonely place to be. You know, to see people with much less talent than you celebrated and lauded all around you. And you're struggling just to make ends meet. You're struggling just to put food on the table. Right. And that's what Poe was battling his whole life. He's the first American writer who tries to make his living solely as an editor and a writer. 
solely through his gifts as literature. Most writers had day jobs of some kind. They were either wealthy or had day jobs. Um, you know, that was true of Washington Irving. That was true of Emerson. That was true of, uh, of Longfellow. They were teachers. They had government jobs. They work in, in local parishes. They all had to support themselves in some way with day jobs. Mm -hmm. Poe tried to do it completely as a professional writer in a time when there were no copyright laws. So he'd get paid a, a pittance for a story or a poem. Works of genius. And mm -hmm. then they would be widely stolen and he would get no more money for it at all. He'd get a few bucks. And that was true of the Raven, for instance. There, he gets a few dollars for the Raven and then it is reproduced freely and without any kind of, of, of law preventing it up and down the East Coast. Hmm. So, you know, Poe is very admirable in a lot of ways. Where do where, uh, where do the ideas for these stories come from? You know, um, they come from his his true imagination. Mm -hmm. um, there are aspects of store of, of the stories which where he's where he's drawing from his own life and his own sense of loss. Poe lost a lot of women in his life. A lot of the women who are very important. His own mother, Eliza Poe, who is a very gifted actress, dies of tuberculosis in her twenties. He's not yet three years old and he's at the deathbed. You know, he is adopted by a Richmond merchant, John Allen, who never formally adopts him and makes him part of the family. He's just a foster child and he is always made to feel as a charity case, as an outsider. So even though he's raised as a Southern gentleman and believes he's going to be part of the Virginia aristocracy, mm -hmm. he is never really permitted fully in. To that and really the idea to adopt him was john allen's wife francis who had taken care of eliza poe as she was dying and saw this beautiful young boy and um she could have been the mother figure he needed except she was sick a lot absent a lot and then she died you know and another woman he sort of turned to for comfort was the mother of one of his uh his best friends in richmond uh, she seems to understand him in a way that nobody else does. She only, he only knows her, uh, this woman for a few months and she dies. Oh. You know, his own wife, Virginia, dies at the same age that his mother died of the same thing, tuberculosis. Now, you'll notice in Poe stories and poems, beautiful young women are something of an endangered species. Yes. It, you know, they rarely make it to the end of the story or to the end of the poem. Okay. So um, was he drawing on his own sense of loss for some of these stories? Undoubtedly. But let's not overstate the case. One of the reasons those stories were so popular is because everybody suffered those kinds of losses. He wasn't unique in that way. Death was all around everybody back then. People died. There was a lot of child death because of, and there was a lot of mothers who died in, ch in childbirth because doctors didn't wash their hands. They didn't know about infection and germs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, the mortality rate for women giving birth was very high. Um, if you look at Elizabeth Poe as an actress, she was traveling around the country, very dangerous profession to be in because something was raging in the country at any time of the year. Maybe it was typhoid. Maybe it was cholera. Maybe it was yellow fever, tuberculosis all the time. Any one of those things could, could get you. So everybody lost 
a lot of people. You you were death was all around you back mm -hmm. then. It was much more common, and it the the death being up close and personal was much more. And this is what gave rise to the death culture in the eighteen twenties and eighteen thirties. Poe happens to fit this, but he's part of it too. And I think people tend to think of Poe as, oh, you know, he 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 was the loner in all this. No, he wasn't. He's, the the rise of very ornate cemeteries and funeral rites. This is this all explodes in the 1820s and 30s, when you know it is. You know, it's 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 also the start of the of of public parks, because these were the first public parks. These very ornate, well kept cemeteries with well manicured lawns and ponds and pond stock with geese and ducks and the family would go out on weekends and they would tend to the graves of loved ones and this they would have picnics in cemeteries memorial day before it was known as memorial day was known as decoration day because you, the whole idea was that as a nation we went out and you decorated the graves of your loved ones you know and it be it was a particularly associated with soldiers after the civil war mm -hmm. but Poe is part of this. He's not, you know, he's he's not alone as, as somebody who's losing a lot of people. Sure. You know? He's even part of the death culture as somebody who dies young. He dies at 40. Right. So it's, it's like, well, yeah, you know, it's one of the reasons his stories have a lot of resonance for the people then and for us now was was he was not alone in, in, in that sense. And I think, you know, a lot of people want to make Poe a mad genius. Right. You know, and the madness is, again, undercutting, you know, the real artist and the real writer. Most of the stories come from his imagination. Poe gets, you see, one of the reasons I've reversed the subtitle, if you look at the book, that the subtitle is The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the reasons I reversed the usual order is because most biographies start where life begins and the logical place is when somebody is born. Right. In Poe's case, the discussion of Poe always seems to start with his death instead of his birth. Uh -huh. And that's one of the reasons I reverse the subtitle because in some ways that's where it starts. And, but also because Poe dies under very mysterious circumstances. Poe dies in Baltimore in October of 1849, and we don't know what killed him. We have at least 26 theories, active theories now, as the possibilities of what killed Edgar Allan Poe. Uh -huh. So Poe left us with a mystery. And he not only left us with a mystery, he left us with a double-barreled mystery because there's also the mystery of the missing days. Poe gets on a steamer leaving Richmond, heading for Baltimore in late September of 1849. And from the moment he puts his foot on the deck of that steamer, a curtain comes down and Poe is obscured from our view for the next several days until he's discovered on the streets of Baltimore, insensible, wearing clothes which were not his own. Nobody knows what happened to him. No witness ever came forward so much as to say, I had a conversation with him at the, uh, on the deck of the steamer, or I passed him in the street of Baltimore. Nothing. 
these days are completely shielded from our view. So Poe leaves us with not just a mystery, but a double-barreled mystery. Uh-huh. Poe dies under circumstances which reflect his two greatest literary achievements. He dies under circumstances which would not be out of place in one of his own horror stories. He dies a very horrific lingering death. And he also dies under circumstances which are a mis- two, two levels of a mystery. The father of the modern detective story. Uh-huh. That's amazing. That's like one of the great literary stage exits of all time. You know, I don't know of anybody uh, who, who, who's the equal of it. And this is one of the things that has propelled our interest in Edgar Allan Poe. Uh-huh. There's so much mystery around Poe. The only thing we kind of know for absolute certain sure is he stopped drawing breath on October 7th, 1849. We also know that the next day he was buried in a small Presbyterian cemetery in Baltimore, on a very chilly, windy, rainy, terrible, awful day in a ceremony attended by very few people. And then we also know that the following day, October 9th, he was buried yet again. This time by somebody he thought was a friend, Rufus Griswold. Now you can't even say that name without wanting to hiss. I mean, Rufus Griswold, that sounds like a Victorian villain right out of (laughs) it. Rufus Griswold. (laughs) Well, Rufus Griswold, was a poet, and uh, uh, he thought of himself as the the great arbiter of literary taste. And he Poe thought he was a friend. Poe had gone so far as to name him his literary executor in the event of his death. What he Poe did not know was that Griswold was nursing grudges and building up a very strong hatred of Edgar Allan Poe. So yes. when Poe dies, Griswold does not wait until the body is cold. He publishes an obituary in a New York newspaper, which begins, Edgar Allan Poe died the day before yesterday in Baltimore. Some will be surprised, few will be grieved. And it went downhill from there. He did everything in his power to portray Poe as immoral, um, as a terrible person, an awful person, undependable. Um, the damage that Griswold did in many respects has not been out undone today. It extended oh. right to today. And he wasn't done. Griswold goes back and he, for the rest of his life, Griswold is flailing obsessively at the corpse. Now, now is there blowback to this? Yes. Uh, the blowback comes from Poe's friends. Yes, Poe had friends. He had lots of friends. And they tried to correct the image of the false image of Poe that Griswold put over. And then we get the French, led by Baudelaire and his disciples. They idolize Edgar Allan Poe, and they go after Griswold. Baudelaire calls Griswold a pedagogic vampire. Um, He compares Griswold to a cur, a dog. Baudelaire famously writes about Griswold, are there not ordinances in the United States preventing dogs from running loose in your cemeteries? He really goes after Griswold. And the French are kind of the first to understand and celebrate Poe as a genius. But in doing so, they replace one stereotype with another. Because Baudelaire and his disciples wanted to think of Poe's genius being tinged with madness. So they present the 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 wrong image of Poe as being kind of a mad genius. The illustrators of Poe's stories actually start to pick up on this. 
And if you look at the illustrations of a lot of the stories, a lot of Poe's unreliable narrators start to look like him in the illustrations. Yeah. And even as when Poe is being taught in the public school, when I was being taught Poe in the early 1970s in junior high school and high school, uh -huh. my teachers encouraged that view of Poe, that Poe is the guy talking to the raven. Poe is the guy contemplating and obsessively th thinking about murdering his, his, his neighbor, the old man with the pale blue eye and the telltale heart. Poe is the guy luring his, the guy to his death in the cask of Amontillado. Mm -hmm. And that's none of that's true. Poe brilliantly created the unreliable narrator. It's a literary achievement. It's not the, the, you know, you, you're just completely cheapening what he did if you sort of say, oh, well, that's just, you know, reflections of who he was, uh -huh. you know, and, and it wasn't who he was at all. So, you know, this kind of gets back to, you know, where did this come from? Where did all this come from? One of the things ways it came from was genius is that Poe is an unqualified, unquestioned genius. And that's one of the things that just you know, blows your mind about this when, when you study Poe and you really get to the real Poe. It's like right. when he finishes the Raven, it, he, he finishes the Raven, he starts the Raven in Philadelphia, finishes it in New York. And when he's got the, the it finished. Now, most writers, when they finish something, are immediately racked with doubt. Mm -hmm. It's a natural human response. You write something. And then you're just completely second guessing yourself. And yeah. somebody says, well, how did it turn out? And you go, I don't know. I'm sure I screwed it up somehow. Oh, you know, we all suffer from imposter syndrome. We all suffer from, from, from crippling self-doubt. It sort of goes hand in hand with being a writer, you know, mm -hmm. but a genius who understands genius, <laughs> that's different. So Poe finishes the Raven and he's walking down the streets of Manhattan and he sees a young friend coming towards him. And the young friend asks him, you know, like, how are you, Poe? And Poe says, uh, fine, I'm so, I'm, I'm wonderful. I have just completed the greatest poem ever written. And the friend says, oh, that's nice. And he says, that Poe says, no, you don't understand. I've just finished the greatest poem ever written. And the friend doesn't really know how to respond. So, so Poe, this is probably the first public recitation of the poem. Poe recites the poem to him. You know, he recites the raven to this. This is, and he finishes, and 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 the friend says, "Well, well, that is fine." And Poe says, "Fine, fine. It's the greatest poem ever written." <laughs> he knew. He knew. That's Mozart. Mm -hmm. That's. You know, that's genius. That's, you know, to do it's one thing. To know what you've done is another. So, you know, Poe just is, is this, this amazing, like I said, when you look at the death and life of Edgar Allan Poe, that's one of the things, you know, because this guy, he gets buried in 1849. Then he gets buried by Griswold under this mountain of misinformation. Then he gets buried by his own admirers of the French under this 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 other stereotype. Then in 1875, he gets buried again because they dug him up. And because he was at this point, Baltimore is just starting to think this Edgar Allan Poe might have been something. Mm -hmm. So they dug him up and they wanted to put this big monument. 
over his grave. But where they put him originally, there was no room for the monument. So they had to dig him up and put him in the front of the cemetery. And they put up this ornate monument, which is there to this day. So they buried him yet again. This guy just keeps getting buried. But if you know anything about an Edgar Allan Poe short story or poem, you know there's one hard rule. Nothing stays buried in Edgar Allan Poe's stories right. and poems. And that's going to be true of Poe. He is going to escape the grave. He's going to emerge the grave. And he's going to be bigger and better. And he's going to outlive, outshine, outlast all his contemporaries, all of his enemies. And that's why I reversed the title, The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe, because this guy's afterlife is better than any writer could have ever wished for. So much so you wish you could go back in time, tap him on the shoulder and say, don't worry. You're going to be the guy they remember. You're going to be the guy. You know, I said that to a Poe scholar in Philadelphia. I said, you, you wish he knew. And she, and she sort of just she thought about that for a second and she said, you know what? I think he did. And I said, I had to think about it. And I said, I think you're right. I think he did because I think he did understand his own genius. I think he did know. Right. This, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm the one that's going to live. What a fascinating figure he was. Now, when you talk about him dying and his death, you, you mentioned that he had a long, drawn out death. Well, it went over several days, several okay. days where he's in and out of consciousness and um, he's in very, very bad shape. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the thing is, he, when this book came about, when, when the, you know, this book came about through a discussion with an editor at St. Martin's. Mm -hmm. And I had done a book on the Twilight Zone uh, for them, which was published in 2017. Um, everything I need to know, I learned in the Twilight Zone. And it's my kind of uh, tribute to Rod Serling and what Rod Serling had done with The Twilight Zone, which is my favorite show of all time. So um, when a show, when a book does well enough, there's a clause in your contract which gives the publisher the option for your next book. It doesn't mean they have to do it, mm -hmm. but you have to at least offer it to them. And it's a good clause because it means if, if, if a book does well and they did well by you by publishing that book, they should have the right to enjoy at least the, your next success or your next shot at success. Mm -hmm. So we, 2019, I had this discussion with this editor about um, what the next book might be. Now, I've carried Edgar Allan Poe through my entire life, but if I'm associated with any American author, it's obviously Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. Five of my books are Twain-centric. So um, I had never thought of, you know, I, I guess I, I didn't have that much hubris to say, well, I should be the guy to write the next biography of Edgar Allan Poe. Right. So we were having this discussion and I hit this guy with what I thought was my best slam dunk, can't miss idea. And the only problem was it missed and it missed badly. He was not the least bit interested in my idea. And he counter proposed. He, 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 he gave, hit me with an idea he thought would be good for me. And I didn't like his idea. I just didn't, It wasn't that it was a bad idea. It just right. didn't. It just didn't speak to me. And so I counterproposed and he counterproposed and we were, we were going to reach impasse. We were going to the point where you say, well, let's table this discussion for another day. Let's mm -hmm. go away and, and think about it. And just as we were about to get off the phone, he said, what about Edgar Allan Poe? And I thought, so why did you say that? 
And he said, well, it just seems like Poe checks a lot of your boxes. And I thought, and now sometimes it takes somebody else to point out the obvious. Right. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, Poe was the inventor of the modern horror story. You have written books about landmark horror topics like Dracula and the Night Stalker. Uh -huh. uh, Poe was the father of the modern detective story. You've written a book about a great detective character with the Columbo file. Poe is a critic for most of his professional life. You were a critic for most of your professional life. You are fascinated with a 19th century American author. Poe is a 19th century American author. You've written literary biography. This would be a literary biography. How does this not check all your boxes? And I had to think, he's right. You know, that that's it's, it's all correct. But then it came down to what kind of book, what kind of biography he wanted. And it very quickly, he wanted a book about Edgar Allan Poe's death. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, uh-oh. And I said, I, you are not suggesting we write that type of book that seems to arrive on the noon stage with great regularity every two years and purports to definitively solve the identity of Jack the Ripper. I mean, how many times have we got that book? How many suspects are we up to at this point? And you know there's going to be another one in a couple of years which will definitively solve the identity of Jack the Ripper. Right. I said, if that's the kind of book you want, you better find yourself another lunatic because this one is driving away. Let me tell you why that book can't be written and why this is a cold case. A, there was no autopsy. And even if there had been an autopsy, it would have been worthless because very few people knew how to perform an autopsy in 1849. Mm -hmm. And if they had performed an autopsy, it would have been performed with the equivalent of butcher's knives. Right. The, the state of the autopsy did not come into the modern era until the Civil War. The Civil War is the defining moment in autopsies because we got very good at cutting up bodies during this, the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So Poe dies in 1849. No autopsy. No death certificate. The witnesses to Poe's death, those that there were, are not just unreliable. They contradict not just each other, but themselves. The attending physician, John Moran, the one person we need to be consistently reliable and precise in his observation, is anything but. He leaves behind three accounts of Poe's death each one wildly different in tone and details. Moran goes so far as to change the time of death. Moran goes so far as to change Poe's last words. Now, if you had that on the witness stand and you said to this guy, to the jury, you know, this guy has three different accounts mm -hmm. and he, he changes such major details as the time of death and the last words. You can't believe anything that comes out of his mouth. So we have tremendously unreliable witnesses throughout Poe's life, but especially surrounding his death. For all of these reasons, and now are a few more, mm -hmm. there's no surviving soft tissue that can be subjected to modern forensics. And there's no documentation that you can look up which will give you health records for Edgar Allan Poe. There are no checkups. There's no uh, diagnostics here. Right. For all of these reasons, this is a cold case. I said, but I'll tell you the book I will write. I will write a book 
that examines Poe's life. I am much more interested in how Edgar Allan Poe lived than how he died and mm -hmm. use his death as the filter of examining his life. Um, if I can come up with, which I think is a logical, convincing, and compelling theory as to how Poe died, I will mm -hmm. present it. It will have to be a circumstantial argument. And that's not to say circumstantial arguments can't carry the day. You can take a circumstantial case into court and win if it's strong. Right. I said, but I am not going to the next step and claim I can prove it. I said, that would be irresponsible in, 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 in so many ways. I said, but I will go so far as to say, if I, if I find something, and I did, I, I, I do have a theory as to how Poe died. I do not insist on it, uh -huh. you know, and, 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 I'm not even sure I want this solved. I think we would lose much more than we would gain if we could definitively solve how Edgar Allan Poe died. There's something incredibly romantic, incredibly mysterious, and incredibly alluring about Poe's death remaining unsolved. Um, like I said, I, I like my theory a lot, and I went to great lengths to be as convincing as I could with it. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I, this book takes chances. I, I, this is kind of the point where I say, you know, this is sort of like the Surgeon General's warning on the book that, you know, comes with every pack of cigarettes. Um, the Surgeon's General warning on this book is that it is not a traditional orthodox biography of Edgar Allan Poe. Um, that is not the book I want set out to write or I had any desire to write. I think there have been enough of those. Very good. And that's not dismissive of them. There there's some very good biographies of Edgar Allan right. Poe. I'm a great admirer of, of many of them. Um, it's just that there are a lot of A to Z accounts of Edgar Allan Poe's life. I wanted to um, take some chances because Poe took chances uh -huh. as a writer. And I also couldn't pretend to be the type of writer I wasn't. Uh, I was a journalist for 43 years. Sure. Uh, I was writing a popular biography of Poe. This is not a standard academic study of Poe's life. There are better people for that, or at least there better be. I set out to write, um, as I said, a working writer's view of a working writer. And the two big chances I took with this book, and I knew I was going off the high diving board with both of them. And it's up to others to say whether these chances were successful or not. But one of the chances was there's a dual timeline to the book. The book starts with his death. Uh -huh. And then there are alternating chapters. The chapters alternate between the last four months of Edgar Allan Poe's life when clearly something is wrong. And uh -huh. he's heading towards that date with death in Baltimore. And those chapters alternate with longer chapters looking at different sections of his life until the two timelines meet at the end and I present my theory as to how Poe died. So that's one major uh, departure I took from traditional biography with this. Mm -hmm. The other is I did interviews. And it's like, well, how do you do interviews for somebody who died in 1849? There's nobody right. alive who knew Edgar Allan Poe. There's nobody alive who knew anybody who knew Edgar Allan Poe. But I was a journalist. Uh, for 43 years, and I was going to use the skills of a journalist and a documentarian, if you will. Uh -huh. And I approached this as a detective on the case, um, uh, looking, examining Poe's life and his death. 
So right. my a detective interviews witnesses, expert witnesses. My witnesses were post scholars, leading post scholars who have spent years ex minutely examining various aspects of Poe's life and writing. So I interviewed many of these post scholars who had great insight into various aspects of Poe as a character and as a writer. My witnesses were forensic, forensic, uh, for, for, forensic anthropologists mm -hmm. and forensic pathologists, both people who study from an academic standpoint, forensic, and then people who actually conduct autopsies for a living. And uh, a very, I was so fortunate to find Patrick Hensma, who is uh, in Wisconsin and is a leading forensic pathologist. And he not only is uh, an expert in autopsies, he's writing a history of autopsies. He's also an expert on Edgar Allan Poe. He has studied Poe and he agreed to examine all of the evidence for me and discuss the possibilities. My witnesses were detectives, true crime writers. I brought the FBI in on the case, uh, not just the FBI, but John Douglas, the, uh, yeah. the creator of the FBI's profiling unit. Uh -huh. John agreed to look at the case for me and give me some his thoughts on Poe and the case. Um, and my experts were those horror writers I mentioned, people like sure. Stephen King and Anne Rice and Ray Bradbury and Robert Block and Wes Craven, who understood the mentality of what it takes to do great horror. So these, I did about 50 interviews for the book and those voices are heard throughout the book. So those were the two big chances I, I, I took with it, you know, and and I like that though those I mean I'm, I'm <laughs> if nobody else likes the book I'm gonna like it as Mark Twain said of Huckleberry Finn if nobody else likes it I like it and um, but I I knew I was taking and and you know when you go off that high a diving board you 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 know that on your way down you're basically this is an act of faith and you're hoping there's water in the pool when you get down there right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so you know you're taking a chance when you do this. Absolutely. Mark, I want to thank you so much. This was great. Oh, my gosh. Well, no, thank you. I mean, this is, you know, I, as you could tell, I, I, you know, you're never going to get a, a lack of energy or passion from me on the subjects that I, the, 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 you know, the great things about all the books I've written is they all are things that I am deeply passionate about. So it's always easy to kind of talk about these things. I know it's, I was once at a book fair and a guy going past my table, looked down at the books and then looked up at me and looked back down at the books. And he said, I don't get it. And I said, what's not to get? And he said, well, I don't understand the common theme here. You, this, this stuff seems to be all over the table. You know, this is like, you've got a book on Theodore Roosevelt. You got a book, they got horror stuff. You got TV history. Yeah. You, you got books on Mark Twain. What's the common theme? And I said, me, I'm the common theme. These are all my interests and all my passions. And, you know, I, I, I don't like repeating myself. I don't like climbing the same mountain over and over again. Sure. So, so you know, the, the, that's why, you know, it's very easy for me to talk about these things, you know, because 
it's very easy to sort of tap into the energy and the passion for these things because it's there. It's not funny. I like Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. I didn't write this book. Not to say he was he would have been an easy friend, but I think Edgar Allan Poe would have been the very definition of high maintenance. Oh yeah. You know, he, he had a, he had a very difficult side, uh, but I would have liked to have been his friend. I would have liked to have tried to help him, even though probably there would have been times I would have avoided him if mm-hmm. I saw him coming, you know. <laughs> so it's like somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, um, if you could choose, if you could have dinner with Mark Twain or Edgar Allan Poe, which one would you have dinner with? I said, Mark Twain in a heartbeat. <laughs> We're going to have a good time. You know, we're going to have a couple cigars, have a couple scotches. We're going to laugh. I said, you know, I said, Poe would be a tough, you know, dinner. It'd probably be a lot of whining and complaining. Uh, I said, not to say I wouldn't want to have been Poe's friend, you know, but definitely Twain. <laughs> not even close. Absolutely. So what's next for you, sir? You know, I, 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 I would, one thing I would like to do, I did a book on, on the Night Stalker, the Carl Kolschak character. Uh-huh. Um, it has been out of print. It was published in 1997. The Night Stalker Companion has been, it was been out of print since 2007. And the prices online have gone up and up and up. I would really like to revise that book a bit and get it back in print, uh, which I did with my Columbo book a few years ago. And uh-huh. it did very well. And I would like to get that into the hands of Kolshak fans, a, 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 an affordable re, a revised edition into their hands. So that's one thing I know I'm going to be trying. But as far as the next new book goes, I'll tell you the truth. If I could give you an answer and I would be wrong. I've right. been wrong every time I've said what the next book was going to be. Um, I've said, you know, well, this is going to be the next one. Uh-huh. And then fate steps in and says, no, 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 no. This is the next book. I mean, projects choose you. You don't choose them. Right, right. So, you know, I mean, I've got a, n- a number of things I'm thinking about, but I'm not so foolish as to say this is definitely going to be the next book. Because mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be wrong. You know, <laughs> if, if, if I say it, then it's not going to happen. Absolutely. It'll, it'll not be the book. You know? Absolutely. How can people find you, sir? Well, I'm very easy. I'm very easy to find. I'm on Facebook. Also, I'm very easy to find there. Our theater company has a Facebook page, a largely literary theater company. That uh, So you get, either one gets gets through to me. I have a, a website, an author's website. It's real tricky. It's markdewitziak.com. So it's just myname.com. That is always a very, very easy way to, to find me. The books are at Amazon and, and Barnes and & Noble and and, and and everywhere else where good fine books are sold. So you know, I'm, I'm one of the easiest people on the planet to find. You found me. You know, so. I know. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And I appreciate it. And I'd like to get you back on to talk Mark, you know, Mark Twain or, or another subject. Oh yeah. I, I, happily. You know, there's, there's a lot of subjects which would, which fall, you know, I, you know, when I, you first sent an email, I thought, wait, 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 wait. is this Night Stalker? Is this Dracula? Is, you know, is this Twilight Zone? Is this Stephen King? Is this, oh, oh, it's, 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 it's Edgar Allan Poe, you know, so. Uh, so yes, any of those subjects and Mark Twain forever, you know. Absolutely. Well, you have a great rest of your evening, and thank you so much, sir. No, well, same to you. And thanks for letting me talk and blather on about a, a favorite ah, subject. That was fast, absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Okay, I learned so much. That was great, especially you know the whole Mark Twain thing because I'm a huge Mark Twain fan, and I'm and I'm a Poe fan. You know, I love. I love those types of books. I mean, I'm a Stephen King fan, too, a huge Stephen King fan. Okay, shifting gears tomorrow, of course, is Casual Friday, and Nancy Matz is going to be here. 
and we're going to be talking about, in fact, I forgot, what we were supposed to talk about tomorrow. You guys remember? I don't remember. Let me check this real quick. It's a senility. You get so old, and this is what happens. You end up, you know, trying to remember what you're talking about. Let's see. Here we go. Let me pop in here. Do, do, do. Of course, I won't find the page right away. Watch. It's here. I know it's here. Okay, there's that one. Ah, there we are. Oh, yeah. Past lives and how they influence your current life. That's what we're going to be talking about. And past lives can influence your life. You may not realize it. I remember seeing a thing on KBIE where um, you, you, you could look at scars on your body. And supposedly the scars came from a past life. I don't know. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. But, you know, that the scars, you know, are some kind of injury that that you had in the past life. So that's what we're going to be talking about tomorrow. Not so much scars, but different things that influence us from our past life. Maybe there's a particular food you don't like. And maybe in a past life you didn't like that food. So who knows? So that's what we're going to be talking about tomorrow. Okay. I want to thank you all for coming. Um, but again, if you were watching from Facebook and you liked what you saw, please feel free to um, show me some love. Give me some likes. Give me some thumbs up. Give me some hearts. Also, if you want to follow me, uh, that would be great. Or follow or follow California Haunts Radio. That would be great too. So hit that follow button. If you're watching from uh, YouTube, you can tell us for a long day. If you're watching from YouTube, and you like what you see, same thing. Give me some thumbs up. Give me some heart. Show, show me some love. Because the more of those that I get, the higher the algorithm I get, which means people will be Googling, you know, and then all of a sudden the video will pop up. People can see, even on over on YouTube. So that helps a great deal. Also, if you haven't subscribed already and you would like to subscribe, please click on that little ghost down the bottom right-hand corner with the Sherlock Holmes hat on and the magnifying glasses. Magnifying glass. And that will subscribe you. Okay, guys, I'm going to wrap up for the night, and I hope you learned as much as I did. It was a great interview. I love this guy. I'd like to have, a, I would love to have this gentleman back on, so I'm going to talk to him about that. And uh, thank you for coming on and spending some time with me. I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening. <laughs>